Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and my guest today is another well-known host of a podcast and radio show. His name is Justin Brierley. He was the radio show host of Unbelievable and the podcast host of Ask N.T. Write Anything, which causes me unbelievable envy, <laughs> as is anybody else who's a fan of N.T. Wright. Uh, he's the author of, of a book called Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian, and a new book titled The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Hey, Justin, thanks for joining me again. Thank you very much, Doug, and apologies that I've written books with such very lengthy titles, but <laughs> you, you did a great job getting it all out. I was just about to ask about that because I'm pretty sure that like 100, 150 years ago, there were a lot of books that like just had really long titles and we just, <laughs> we just don't call them by those titles anymore. Now we just subtitle them really lengthy. <laughs> That's right, yeah. If you go back to like Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species, it's actually got some really long title called On the Origin of Species and the Such and Such and Such and Such. Yes, yeah, yes. We, we it's kind of come around again, though, hasn't it? The long book title. Well, and I'm, you know, with the exception of perhaps novels and stuff, it's actually kind of nice because it's like, well, tell me the thesis of this book so that I can tell me, if, you know, so I can decide if I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. so, well, the topic of your book is actually of great interest to me. And you and I are, I think, roughly the same age and we're aware of and we're able to watch the new atheist movement become a big thing in the wake of 9-11 and U.S. foreign policy and understanding what the role of religion and the role of, in many ways, anti-religion, or in this case, anti-Christianity, more specifically with the New Atheist Movement, we were able to watch that rise. And it's had certain effects on the church and on Christians and how we articulate our faith. It's obviously given rise to a lot of apologetics books that deal with some of the questions that were raised by the New Atheist. So I look at this book title and I think, wow, this is really, really great. And I also, and I'm reading your book, and as I finished it, I'm like, man, you had lots of interviews with a lot of really important and critical people. And the podcaster side of me is super envious. And you got to flex that you interviewed all these different people. But the, the more humble part of me is like, you know what? God really placed Justin Briarly in a really important position as, as a radio host to have really important conversations. And I just, I really am thankful for the podcast and mm. show that you, that you did called Unbelievable. And I know it's blessed a lot of people that I know. And also, of course, people have written in and you, you're pretty much aware of people who are appreciating your show. So mm. I am really glad that you were in a really critical position over the last, what was it, 17 years that you did that yeah. show? Yeah, it was yeah. 17 years. It was a kind of a bittersweet parting only quite recently, actually, for The Unbelievable Show, having started the show back in, yeah, 2005, believe it or not. And then sort of moving on from hosting the show just recently at Easter, but it was, yeah, an amazing privilege to host so many conversations across the aisle between, you know, Christian and secular folk and people of other mm -hmm, worldviews. Mm -hmm. and, and also, you know, develop some other shows while I was doing that, like the Ask Into Write Anything podcast and be able to sit at the feet of brilliant thinkers and teachers like that. So, yeah, it's been an amazing <laughs> journey. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's been roughly maybe not even quite half a year yet. And you're doing interviews like this one, I'm sure, about your book and about your conversations. How's it going? 
post unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's going really well, thank you. I mean, there were there were a number of factors that led me to kind of want to to start something new, spread my wings in some fresh areas of of ministry. It's still in the same general area of cultural apologetics and kind of making mm-hmm. the case for faith, but trying to do it in some different ways. The book I'm really excited about because it feels like even during the time that I was doing the unbelievable show, the, the nature of the conversations shifted a lot over those years. And mm, this book mm-hmm. kind of talks about the way that that changed and the way that I think the church is sort of standing on the edge of a sort of new conversation, actually, around God and culture. Yeah. And I'm trying to sort of trace that out in new ways. So I'm sure in the future, I will still do the thing that I'm best known for, which is hosting, moderating discussions between Christians and non-Christians. But just at the moment, I'm enjoying the opportunity to flex some other creative muscles through some new podcasts that I'm involved in. There's one called the Reenchanting Podcast that I've started, which is kind of speaking to both Christians and non-Christians about how we reenchant a secular world with the Christian worldview, but also a new one that I'm developing on the back of this new book, which will be coming out in September, which is more a kind of podcast documentary series, also called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And and if, mm. you know, if you're a podcast listener and you've enjoyed things like, for instance, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast or the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, those kind of podcast documentary series, okay. then, then it'll be kind of along those kind of lines, telling a story over quite a number of episodes. Yeah, so it's just fun being able to do some new projects kind of in my own right and with some new collaborators. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's a good time. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the content of the book. You start off pretty early on talking about how we live in a post-Christian world. And that word has been thrown out a lot, especially in the church, as there have been Christian leaders who have sort of realized we don't live in Christendom anymore. Mm. At the same time, you also take a lot of time to talk about Tom Holland's book, Dominion, which I'm actually in the middle of right now, where basically, if I'm understanding this correctly, we live in such a Christianized world because of the influence of Christ. So what does it mean for you to say that we live in a post-Christian world? And what does that mean for the church? I think just post-Christian means that the influence of the church particularly has waned, obviously, in the last several Mm. generations. The expectations that may have been part of our culture in terms of Christian ethics and norms have obviously gone away. And simply that the Christian story just does not shape people's thinking or sort of identity in the way that it Mm. used to. Okay, Even in ways that were not necessarily consciously understood, I think, by many people, but they nevertheless were part of a bigger picture that essentially encompassed the Christian worldview. So I think the post-Christian world just is, it goes hand in hand with the secularization of our culture, a kind of a more postmodern approach to reality. Mm-hmm. And, and that is just the way the Western world has gone in the last several decades. Now, certainly you've got people like Tom Holland, the historian, and his book Dominion, pointing out that a lot of the assumptions, the kind of the moral instincts of the West are still blatantly, when people take the time to look, part and parcel of the Christian worldview, that that's where they came from. It's just people no longer realize that. They no longer kind of make the connection mm-hmm. that it was the Christian worldview that gave them their continuing belief in justice and morality and equality, dignity, freedom, and so on. So it's really interesting, I think, to be reminding a post-Christian culture of why it believes the things it believes in that respect. A culture that has kind of lost the the story, but still sort of somehow implicitly believes the fundamental kind of assumptions and values that, mm-hmm. that the Christian worldview gave us. It seemed to me that a lot of the, maybe not the new atheists, the four horsemen, as we can talk about who those are in a minute, but 
particularly not those, but it seemed like that new atheist movement seemed to want to come up with new, maybe new foundations for yeah. the beliefs. And that's kind of a different approach to, hey, well, we don't need to have God to tell us that we have inalienable rights or that we, you know, speaking as an American, you know, we can just appeal to science or something yes. like that. And it, yes. it turned out over, over the last few decades that that's a little bit hollow. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think there was a sort of project by some of the new atheists, at least, to try to create some alternate story of where our morality comes from. I mean, Sam Harris had a good crack at it with a book he wrote mm -hmm. called The Moral Landscape, in which he tried to essentially say, well, our moral beliefs really don't stem in any way from religion there. You can get to it on a purely rational scientific basis. But as many people <laughs> pointed out to him when reviewing that book, he just made some fundamental assumptions about the nature yeah. of morality that simply you can't get from reason and science. His baseline was that we should be aiming for the, the kind of flourishing of sentient human beings. Well, that is a pretty important assumption, you know, <laughs> at the basis of it. Why should you do that? You know, and there's been others, similar people trying to yeah, kind of sure. create, create that sort of new mythology almost of where this stuff came from. But I just think a lot of it's fallen flat. And I think someone like Tom Holland does an, an amazing job of just pointing out that the beliefs we happen to have developed in our Western culture, they're quite unusual. They didn't exist in the vast majority of the world throughout history, and they still don't exist in many parts of the world today. They're not what you just get by being rational, civilized people. Mm. They actually come mm -hmm. from a very specific source. And they could go away again as well. They're not a given. So I think it's been really helpful to be reminded that actually you did come from somewhere. You weren't the product of some, the Enlightenment, essentially, which is what the atheists are, are essentially arguing. The Enlightenment itself came from something else, and that was the Christian <laughs> Revolution. I think it's sort of ironic that the Enlightenment is the sort of baseline appeal as a way of saying, well, we don't need Christianity, even though it's like, well, wait a second, the, you know, history didn't start when the Enlightenment started, right? Exactly. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> we could say it was restarted in the first century, which is sort of the point of Tom Holland's book. Mm. So early also in your book, you use this metaphor of a wave. And I think you even, sorry, I don't have it right at my fingertips here, but you use it, I think you quoted a poet talking about yeah. this new wave, or a coming tide, I should say. Yes, metaphor. What's significant about that metaphor and what's happening right now? Because that is what I think, and your book is very much filled with hope mm. for many Christians because it's like, oh, we can have new conversations again and so forth. And so what does that tide look like? Well, I start in the introduction by quoting quite a well-known poem by Matthew Arnold, the Victorian poet called Dover Beach. I'll give you the specific sort of stanza of the poem. It goes like this, the sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar. And those words have been used, well, for 150 years or more as a sort of metaphor for the way in which the Enlightenment, the age of science, reason, and so on, has essentially driven Christianity and religion in general out from the Western world. And that long withdrawing roar of the sea of faith is essentially what secularism represents. It did in Matthew Arnold's day, even more so in our day. But it was a conversation I was having with Douglas Murray, who's quite a well-known mm -hmm. atheist in the UK, but he he actually calls himself a Christian atheist, which yeah. is rather oxymoronic. But he adopts that title because he recognizes, as a journalist and a sort of influential public thinker, that 
that actually, even though he doesn't believe in Christianity, he acknowledges that in that Tom Holland way, all his values and virtues of the West really came from the Christian story. And he, in this conversation that I was having with him and N.T. Wright at the time, said, well, the thing about the sea of faith, Justin, is that it could come back in again. That is the point of tides. And he was talking about this in the context of noticing that some of his thinking friends had actually become Christians. Mm-hmm. And, and I had been noticing something similar, interesting, surprising stories of people converting from atheism to Christian faith. And also this increasing wave of secular intellectuals like Douglas Murray, who were very different from their new atheist counterparts, who were basically taking Christianity seriously. Now, they, they weren't believers, but they could see the way in which it has impacted our culture and the way in which it has given people a story and a, a narrative to live by. And are wondering what we do in the absence of that in a post-Christian world. So Douglas Murray, Tom Holland, Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Haidt, and an increasingly wide range of other thinkers that you could mention, people like Louise Perry, who's become quite a significant thinker in terms of sexuality in the last 18 months or so, recognizing that a post-Christian world is looking for meaning and identity just as much as it ever was. Mm-hmm. But the places where it's finding that identity is, is actually creating more problems than it's solving a lot of the time. And so I just felt there was this, perhaps we are standing at the edge of something new, perhaps a, an incoming tide of thinkers, converts, people who have kind of decided that the atheist materialist store of reality just doesn't work anymore, that that story is running out of steam. And whether the tide, you know, as Douglas Murray said, could be due to come back in again in our generation. So, so that's kind of where it, yeah, where it all began for me. Yeah. How much, <laughs> I'm at the age where I'm starting to realize that these movements and waves and things of history may not actually be familiar to a lot of my listeners because they might be younger. Mm. If you were to describe briefly to somebody who wasn't paying attention or is even younger, what was the New Atheist Movement? So New Atheism was really a movement that began sort of in the mid-2000s, as you said in your introduction, largely in response to things like 9-11, religious extremism. And it was sort of typified by some best-selling books by people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, books like The God Delusion, God is Not Great, The End of Faith. These were books which kind of basically told of the fact that A, God doesn't exist, and B, that religion is bad for you. And essentially wanted to put all of the ills of our society and culture, put religion basically as the boogeyman for all of those things, and did quite a good job of convincing quite a few people of it. It also coincided with really the birth of early forms of social media and internet that allowed a lot of atheists and non-religious people who felt a little bit like they were being oppressed by the religion that they had perhaps grown Mm. up in or was around them, especially in the USA, to kind of band together in ways that they hadn't been able to before through online communities. And so the new atheism was a sort of combination of these sort of leaders who were kind of being much more dogmatic and militant about their anti-theism and sort of the birth of these internet communities and then physical manifestations of that in atheist conferences and rallies. I mean, even to the point that here in the UK, probably its high watermark was something called the Atheist Bust Campaign, where it literally was like an advertising campaign for atheism, where there were these London buses bearing the slogan, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. 
and maybe the equivalent in the US was the Reason Rally in 2012, which was this sort of march on Washington, D.C. with tens of thousands of skeptics and atheists, you know, marching for reason and science and against religion and so on. So it was the most sort of organized, public, popular movement of atheism, I think, that we had ever seen. Because before the new atheism, obviously, there were plenty, there have always been plenty of atheists and increasingly so in a culture, in our culture. But the people who were kind of wore that label tended to be more in academia and so mm-hmm. on. This was a much more sort of popular level movement, if you like, that I think we still very much feel the effects of, you know, in when you do engage with people on Facebook or whatever. Yeah you, yeah. you hear a lot of the same rhetoric from some of those characters and the same sort of skepticism around religion. So that was sort of what it was. But I do think it kind of died off as a kind of cultural movement somewhere around the the mid 2010s, I'd say. I kind of I think it sort of had its high point around mm-hmm. sort of 2010, yeah. 2011, you know. Yeah. And you you even have a few examples in your book of personal conversations or even just the conversations over your show where some of these people who are strongly atheists and sort of joined on to the movement are kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to be that anti-Christian anymore because I've changed in a few years. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there was a sort of honeymoon period with the new atheism where it was very much like you were part of the cool gang if you were part of this movement (laughs) that was being led by these sort of establishment figures who were riding the wave of these popular books and so on. And it felt provocative and edgy. I think it started to lose that over time, partly because the movement itself started to sometimes feel a bit shrill and dogmatic, almost religious, almost in, in its nature itself. In some of the Imagine way, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's always the danger of any movement that's sure, yeah. it, it, it tends to start to look somewhat religious in nature. It had its own high priests and sacred texts and orthodoxies and gatherings and so on. And it's in groups and out groups and the people who eventually came to feel like it didn't represent them. So I think too many atheists that I started meeting felt that they'd suddenly been all lumped under this kind of new atheist umbrella. Mm-hmm. But when they their approach to talking about religion and faith wasn't the same as Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens yeah. and so on. So they didn't want to be associated with this. I, I started to increasingly meet atheists who said, I'm, I'm not a Richard Dawkins kind of atheist. <laughs> and at the same time, I sort of spell this out in some detail in the first chapter of the book, the movement itself kind of began to have internal wrangles that eventually led to full-blown fallouts and controversies, which, because once they'd agreed that God didn't exist and religion was bad for you, it turned out a lot of the atheists involved couldn't agree on anything else. Like, well, where are we going to take this movement now? There was one faction that wanted to go in this movement called Atheism Plus. So we aren't just atheists, but we also are committed to other sort of social justice ideologies, feminism, Mm -hmm. anti-racism, LGBT rights, and so on. And others who felt like this was an unwanted, unnecessary politicization of the movement. We should just be about free thought and science and reason and felt like it was becoming a politically correct kind of quasi-religious sort of endeavor. And, And this led to some major fallouts, as I say, to the point where many of these atheist leaders were no longer willing to share a stage on atheist conferences. They were being canceled. There was all kinds of infighting. Even Richard Dawkins himself, you know, got stripped of his Humanist of the Year award in 2021 
this really does sound like a like a theological convention situation. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, we're not going to associate with that theologian. <laughs> like, you are describing a religion, Justin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're behaving like Christians. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So Christians are all too aware of what happens when you kind of get large movements that start to splinter from each other. But it happened in the atheist world. And to that extent, the movement itself kind of ran out of steam, as I say, because of this splintering and so on. And largely got subsumed by what we now call the culture wars. A lot of other issues started to, in a sense, become key for these figures who had once mm -hmm. sort of railed against God. And that was where I was seeing some interesting characters. I mean, I tell the story in particular in one chapter of Peter Bogosian, who was sort of a very much on the side of the new atheism, uh, a professor of philosophy at Portland State University, who wrote his own kind of new atheist book called A Manual for Creating Atheists. And when I had him, in, you know, the first time on my Unbelievable show, he was very much there, you know, saying religious belief is kind of like a mental delusion and, and all those kinds of talking points mm. of the new atheism. But when I reached out to him several years later, in this was about 2018, I guess, seeking to have him for a live discussion when I was coming to Portland for an event, he very graciously on email said, Justin, you probably would hardly recognize me now in terms of the way I approach these mm. issues. I've basically given up debating Christians. In fact, I see a lot of Christians more as my sort of bedfellows now than, than my enemies because there's a much bigger, more toxic enemy that I'm fighting. And well, this mm. enemy for Bogosian at least turned out to be the kind of the influx of what he calls grievance studies and sort of woke ideologies on campus and yeah. so on, which he felt had become a another kind of religion, basically, that he was having to fight with his sort of co-conspirators. They, they ended up doing this sort of series of, of hoax academic papers submitted to peer-reviewed journals that got passed, mm -hmm. which had these outlandish theories, but they just used the right kind of terminology and were able to get these published. And, and, and it was to kind of expose, as they saw it, this, this sort of facile roots of this whole, the, the, this particular new set of ideologies that captured uh, mm -hmm. academia. But for me, it, it was just such an interesting case study in the way that this new atheist had completely changed his tone to Christians. Now, he hadn't become a Christian, obviously, but he no longer saw Christians as the enemy. In fact, he often saw them more as his ally. And mm, yeah. then the new enemy were, was this other kind of threat to academic freedom and everything else that he perceived. So, yeah. And it, it was like that for almost all the leaders of the movement. They basically took sides in those culture wars. And that was where the energy of the movement went. It completely went out of the kind of tearing down Christians and religion. It, it's all gone into those sort of ideological issues. Well, it seems that they are still, there's a, the common theme is that they're against the religious fundamentalism, which I think is the sort of take that he and folks like James Lindsay are taking against like the woke stuff yeah. is that they're pretty fundamentalist about this. And they're still against that type of rhetoric, which is why they left the new atheist movement because it became <laughs> a little bit more in that mm mirror image of the opposite side, right? Where they're becoming a little bit more rigid and fundamentalist in that regard. We would be remiss to not, and you would be remiss to not discuss a particular character in this whole story, as it were. And that is Jordan Peterson, who is obviously pretty well known. I don't even think we need much introduction to who he is. Do you see him as sort of a gateway drug for a lot of people who are like not really into Christianity, but now are interested in the Bible and interested in things of faith? I think indisputably he has been that. I mean, obviously lots of people have had a lot of time to wonder where exactly he is on that whole journey. But I'd say mm. he's absolutely opened up the possibility of taking Christianity seriously for a lot of people. Now, 
I'm fully aware he's he's not universally liked by by everyone. He's <laughs> he's a kind of controversial character in some ways. But having said all that, he has for a lot of especially young men, I think, he became after they'd kind of not been fed substantial sort of life advice by the new atheists. I think a lot of people went to him and others like him to sort of try and sit at the feet of someone who they felt could give them a way of understanding themselves, their identity, how to make a go of life. And he did it by turning to the Bible, essentially. He said, look, there is this ancient treasure trove of wisdom in this book called the Bible, and you should take note of it. It's informed the lives of generations of people before you. So don't be so yeah, arrogant to think that it, it, it couldn't be relevant to you. And and so he became, you know, almost a quasi-evangelist for at least the Judeo-Christian tradition. When you read books like mm-hmm. 12 Rules for Life, it's absolutely stuffed with references to the Bible and the way in which we can only make sense of the idea of human sovereignty and rights from Genesis 1 and things like that. And so I found him quite a remarkable character. Again, without sort of endorsing everything he says or does, he was this remarkable figure who seemed to be pointing people back towards scripture and the Judeo-Christian tradition as a way of understanding who you are and how to make sense of life and so on. And I think that has continued to be the case. He has obviously millions of people who have listened to his podcast, watched his YouTube lectures, attended his lectures in person and so on. And so many of the people I've spoken to and who have kind of been sort of turned on again to the possibility that there might be something in this Christian thing Mm. have been influenced by him because they've been given permission to see the Bible, not as this sort of ridiculous book of fairy tales and nonsense, which is what they were told by the new atheists, but as this kind of repository of psychological wisdom, effectively. And that's completely changed the way in which people talk about it, in my experience. There's just far less of that immediate sort of knee-jerk new atheism, which you still encounter, mm. of course, you know, in yeah, certain yeah. segments of the internet. But but in the public discourse, just a lot more of kind of an openness to taking Christianity seriously. Now, that doesn't answer everything, you know, because at the end of the day, was Jesus really the son of God? That's an important question we need to ask mm. ourselves if we're, we're serious about Christianity. But it, it opens up that question in a way that you couldn't ever have imagined when the new atheists were the ones on the stage influencing those people. Yeah, yeah. Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Christ is King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly eBooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. If you were to sit down and have dinner with Jordan Peterson, what would you have to say to him? I'd love to know where he's at personally, just on a purely kind of nosy level. I'm I'm kind of like, (laughs) 
because you get glimpses into what he's up to and where he's sort of his current. Yeah, I'd ask him, do you pray? And when you pray, what do you pray? <laughs> yeah. Because it's interesting with Jordan Peterson, his number of his family have become Christians quite explicitly. His, his wife has become a very devout Catholic, as far as I can see. His daughter, Michaela, has had a sort of conversion to Christian faith. And a number of people around him, he seems to be surrounding himself with a lot of interesting Christian thinkers. John Pajot, who's this sort of orthodox icon carver, mm -hmm. who he does a lot of stuff with these days. A friend of mine called James Orr, who's a theologian from Cambridge University and, and many others. And I'd just love to delve into whether he's sort of moving beyond God simply as a sort of Jungian archetype sort of placeholder for as a sort of yeah, right. helpful psychological kind of concept to whether he is going on that sort of C.S. Lewis journey of putting it all together that the myth mm -hmm. became fact. Well, that I think that's what a lot of yeah. I think that's what a lot of Christians are hung up on when they're like, well, that he's just basically Jungian psychologist using Christianity to sort of envelop or to develop his psychological, you know, mm. I don't know if I quite see it that way. I think I'm just, I sort of see it the way you've described it as there's a good possibility that the Lord is putting people in his life and is, I want to say shoving, but like funneling yeah. and shoveling. I'm, I think shoving and shoveling in, the, in my head, like, hey, they're funneling him. Yeah. Uh, he's funneling Jordan Peterson into a, a particular direction. And I think part of my little theoretical, if you had dinner with him, how would you advise him about understanding the scriptures in a more, Christian way rather than a more yeah. psychological way. I feel like I wouldn't necessarily be able to tell him anything he probably hasn't heard before. But I want to say, I think like you often approach the scriptures as that they're sort of true, metaphorically true, because they work. But I think it's the other way around. I think they work because mm. they're true. Mm. That actually something as successful as this that speaks to so many people over so many generations, there's got to be something objectively true about it. And I'd say the place to look for that is in the person of Jesus Christ, because that's where I think the rubber hits the road. And I think he's kind of, he's sort of intimated in some of his most, almost personal discussions that I've listened to, at least on this front, that that's mm -hmm. where he's most challenged by it. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, because as he has himself sort of said, it, it feels like in Christ, that psychological world of meaning and myth meets the objective world of a fact and historical reality. And somehow in Jesus, these two worlds intersect. And I think to that extent, there is a sort of similarity with the journey he seems to be on and the one that C.S. Lewis took, you know, where mm -hmm. he had this sort of world of imagination and meaning that he was entranced by as a scholar of English literature and so on. And yet he was also this naturalist who can reconcile that with a world of just pure material stuff. And it was sort of when Tolkien helped him to see that Jesus was the center point of all that, that he was the, mm -hmm. he brought all those myths and made them into the world of material reality. The myth became fact. Yeah, And I just wonder if, if Peterson maybe needs to go on some similar journey, maybe on that journey. I don't know. It's all speculation at the end of the day. And who sure. knows whether we'll get a surprised by joy type memoir. <laughs> towards the end of his life. But we'll, well, we'll yeah. see, you know. The quintessential question at this point for Peterson is Jesus's question to the Peter, who do you say that I am? Mm. And mm. that's kind of where it comes down to it for him at this point because he's been, 
I would just say he's been Christianized in, in a number of ways and he's helped mm-hmm. other people to see the value and all of that. I don't know if you saw the Babylon Bee headline. It was sort of had to do with Peterson saying that the Bible has all these kinds of meanings, except what it actually says. <laughs> and it's just like, man, I kind of hope that he sees that headline because it's really funny and I'm sure he would get a chuckle out of it. But it's also yeah. kind of like, hey, like maybe take this. It's true, not just because it's metaphorical yeah. and mythical in, in all of those useful ways. So yeah, it's uh, it's good. I, I went on the Babylon Bee podcast a few weeks ago and, and they said they think he did see that that headline and oh, good. they're not good, quite good, good. sure how he took it, whether he was well, offended or laughed. But it's interesting because <laughs> I think there are other people kind of gently needling him in that direction. I, I again listened to a, an interesting discussion he had with Eric Metaxas recently and Eric was quite funny as he is and sort of wasn't just there to kind of fawn over Peterson. He kind mm. of did actually on a few occasions in this interview said, don't don't start with that Jungian stuff, okay? I'm here to tell you that there's a reality to this kind of thing. So he was okay, just fine, okay. fun to hear him yeah, kind of, you know. That's good. Not, not I think he can handle it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. Well, we don't have to make the rest of this conversation about Jordan Peterson, but it would have been obviously a mistake to ignore, because he's a very, he, he's a big elephant in the room right now yeah. it, it, when it comes to the topic of faith and Christianity. I do want to go back just a little bit in, in terms of, I want to say time, Around the time of the New Atheist Movement, so the early aughts, you have also the Emergent Church Movement, which has now sort of been redubbed, even though that word was pretty popular then in academic circles, the word deconstruction. Yeah. And there's this like, now there's this quote unquote deconstruction movement. And I think it's a lot of people in my generation, I think you and I are the same generation, that whatever their faith was about wasn't enough. And so they had to sort of deconstruct that. And some of them reconstructed and remained in the faith or returned to the faith. And others are just, they're not, Mm. or they don't resemble what might be Christian. And I think you've even had interviews with people. I don't know if you interviewed Josh Harris or not. I tried, I tried, but yeah, we never made something happen with Josh. Yeah, We've certainly had conversations about Josh Harris and many of the others who have deconstructed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I guess the question I have for you is, what is really going on there? And do you think that there is a spirit movement at work that is bringing people to a more authentic faith for themselves? Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm always an optimist in these things because I, I honestly do believe that there's always a bigger picture going on that we all don't always see. And we quite often think of something like the move towards deconstruction and, and so on as a negative because it's sort of shaking the, the traditional structures, you mm-hmm. know, of, of our particular moment of Christianity. But I, I actually think actually sometimes you have to have these things before because sometimes things have to die off and be reshaped and rebirthed. And that's always been the story of Christianity. You know, I think G.K. Chesterton said Christianity has died a thousand deaths and been reborn as many times. And that has always been the way because it has a God who knew his way out of the grave. It's a sort of there's this kind of cycle mm. of death and rebirth in Christianity. And I feel like the deconstruction movement for me, it's a response primarily to a certain, especially in the USA, certain cultural forms of evangelical Christianity that have for some mm-hmm. people come to, to feel oppressive or as though they're more tied to politics and certain... Or know, abusive. Yeah, abusive yeah. things or whatever, certain forms of power and, and everything. And in that sense, there's been a reckoning, I think, in the evangelical church through the deconstruction movement, but we've also very much tied to, I think, these all these celebrity pastor scandals and things that we've seen in the last few years, the Rabbi Zachariah scandal. 
there's been a sort of big questioning about whether this is what the church is supposed to look like, whether this is actually the model that Jesus had in mind for the kingdom of God, or whether actually what we've sort of done is created a sort of subculture, a kind of an industry that is actually more about humans and their pedestals and than actually about putting Jesus Christ as Lord. And I think for me, however that shakes out in terms of well-known pastors saying I'm jacking in Christianity, I often feel like they're not jacking in Christianity. They're jacking in the cultural form of Christianity that they have been mm. sort of exposed yeah. to. So often, you know, when I did meet ex-Christians, ex-evangelicals and so on, when I was hosting The Unbelievable Show, and we did a lot of conversations with people, I often felt like what they were rejecting wasn't necessarily the core faith. It was the cultural expression that they'd grown up in of Christianity. And I just felt like so many of those stories needn't have gone in that direction if some of those folks had been exposed to just a wider understanding, a greater breadth of the Christian tradition than just the sort of the specific niche that they kind of grew up mm -hmm, in and told mm -hmm. was the only thing on offer. So for me, I'm I think it's really helpful that we live in an age where people kind of, in a sense, can see that a much bigger picture and that their, perhaps their version of cultural Christianity isn't the only thing on offer. And like you said, I think a, a number do reconstruct uh, and, and find a way of understanding their faith and everything. Others seem, don't seem to be able to put the pieces back together or haven't yet. And again, who, who knows what the end picture might be for them. Mm -hmm. I never feel like, and even though the statistics say, you know, oh, church going on the decline, less and less people ticking the Christian boxes, surveys, rise of the nuns and so on. I just feel like, well, that's a snapshot of where we're at in the West right now, but that's not the end story. And I just suspect the Christian story will come back in again, but it'll be different. There'll be a different kind of container for it possibly, mm. and things will adapt and change as they always have in the course of the 2000 years of Christendom. Yeah. Um, so why should we expect our age to suddenly have the final version of what the church looks like or Christianity looks like. So, yeah. so I'm kind of more optimistic and I just see what I'm trying to express in the book, I suppose, is maybe we're on the cusp of one of those changes and, and mm -hmm. the emergent church, the progressive movement, it's all kind of, it's all bound up in that, I think, because people are questioning kind of what it means to be a Christian, what that identity should be. And yeah, yeah. So that's my kind of take on it. Yeah, no. And to kind of bookend our conversation with this whole tide metaphor a little bit, you talk a little bit at the end of your book that the church might have become, like to prepare for the coming tide, we need to be able to answer new questions and engage with people in new ways because we can very easily become really good at defending against the new atheists. And now that's not even the poignant questions that people are asking. Yeah, exactly. And that's a clear risk, right? That we're not ahead of the tide, so to speak, or ready for it because we're now just simply reacting to the questions mm. that the culture is throwing at us, the church, which is in part why a lot of reconstructing Christians have gone to some of the more traditional faiths like Eastern Orthodoxy and Anglicanism and Catholicism rather than evangelicalism. They feel like it's more rooted in something a lot more ancient than just, mm. you know, whatever the milieu of the last decade is. So what is your thoughts to Christians or what is your advice to Christians who want to engage the culture there might be a coming tie. There's going to be a lot of interest. Maybe it's a Jordan mm. Peterson style interest. Maybe it's a, I'm an atheist, but I'm lacking kind of interest. Mm. How do you advise mm. Christians going forward? I think, firstly, obviously buy my book. That's the first thing to do. But no. <laughs> I almost added that as part of my question, other than buying your book. <laughs> which, by the way, I, I know we're here to talk about your book and the topics of your book. The book is really 
phenomenal. And <laughs> you one-upped yourself from the previous book, which I also thought was phenomenal. And by the way, we did an interview on it, which I can mm. link in our show notes. But your book is great, Justin. Oh, thank you. And it's not long, but it is rich with material that I actually was very surprised that I read it slower than I expected to. <laughs> That's good to hear. Oh, thank you, Doug. Yeah, no, you're welcome. You're welcome. Other than my book, I think, I mean, I tried to draw out some principles towards the end of the book about how Christians can be ready for this incoming tide. And I think what we need to realize is, this has been said by many other people as well, that when you're dealing with people coming in in a post-Christian age, a very de-churched age, they don't necessarily have almost any sort of anything from the Christian story that they're bringing with them. So so you're dealing with a blank canvas in some ways. And sometimes, some ways that's a good thing because... Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think it's better to start with, with a blank canvas than people who think they know what Christianity is, but they've actually got a really kind of warped version of it, it that they've been handed down by their culture or something. So I, I think there's there, there, there's an advantage in some respects for Christians in that way. I think that we need to, I think the difference between sort of the answers that were kind of being developed, especially in my field of apologetics to the new atheism, I think the way the conversation has changed is that young people, I, I don't think they're first question is, does God exist? I think it's, how do I make sense of my life? What, what is my life here for? Mm. What's my identity? And I think because a lot of that younger generation is swimming in a sea of options for identity and a kind of all kinds of different stories where they might get meaning from, I think there's a lot of confusion and a lot of contradictory options on offer. And I think to some extent, it's about simply and clearly spelling out the Christian story again and the way in which this is a story that actually can make sense of your life in a way that you've been trying to make sense of your life through a number of other possible identities and so on. Mm. And I think you do that in all the normal creative missional ways that from the very beginning of the church they did, you know, when Paul went to the Oropagus in Acts and said, I see that you're very religious. Let me tell you about this unknown, you know, God that you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we're doing the same thing as Paul, but we're saying, I see you're very religious, but the religions are not these physical idols. They're, they're these other things that people are kind of building their life around, these identities and social causes and so mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. And I think we go to them and we say, this is, can I introduce you to the thing that I think you were looking for all the time, that you were groping in the dark for, as Paul says, and point them to their, you know... <laughs> their equivalents of the idols and the poetry that Paul quotes, it's there, you know, in the films, it's in the Harry Potter films, it's in the music that they love, it's in the, it's in the things that seem to speak to their soul in so many ways. But if you can somehow show that all of those things are actually pointing towards a source, something, a bigger story that they can be part of, I think that's still incredibly attractive, compelling to people once they really understand what that is. And so some of the stories of converts I tell in the book are people who, people who would tell you, I never expected Christianity to be the thing that would eventually make sense of my life. But mm. having tried the material secular story of reality, and then, you know, one of the guys I talk about, Paul King's daughter, celebrated author and poet here in the UK, he also tried Buddhism and even Wicca. And eventually, to, much to his own surprise, he found that the Christian story was what made sense of who he was in his life. And... To that extent, it's really important, I think, to remember that it's not just an intellectual thing. I think that's where we've sometimes taken a wrong turn with apologetics, thinking all we need to do is present people with kind of intellectual facts and mm-hmm, arguments. Mm-hmm. 
But it's, it's about appealing to people's emotion, their soul, what they would like the world to be like, basically, which again is what C.S. Lewis did so well with things like the Narnia stories. He, he created a world that people wanted to be real. And then he said, well, what if it is real? Mm. What if it, there really is a king? There really is this grand adventure that you can be part of. And, you know, it's the same task for us today is to sort of say there is this grand adventure that you can be part of, the thing that your soul has been aching for. And it's a much bigger story than the ones you've been telling yourselves for so long. And for me, that's the church sometimes does a great job of that and sometimes does a really poor job of that. And we would do well to kind of see who is doing a great job of bringing people into that story today and helping them to kind of engage on it in new and creative ways. So so that that's where I'd encourage people to go is to look at the things that are firing today's generation and how we can point them back to the source of that in Jesus Christ without just sort of immediately assuming they just need three philosophical arguments for God and five reasons why the resurrection is true. Make them want <laughs> that to be true in the first place. Make them want there to be a world where there is an ultimate meaning and there is hope that goes beyond the grave and that kind of thing. And then there might be room for an apologetics discussion of that nature. I hope that helps in some way. No, it really does. I mean, that really is a good way to wrap up the conversation here. And obviously, we'll appeal one more time to where can people buy your book? Because I believe this episode will release just before the official book's release date. So whether it's pre-order or whether they're hearing it after the fact, where would you like people to visit to purchase the book? Well, if you can do it via my website, that would be wonderful. Justinbriarly.com. And there's a link to the book there. You can even get hold of signed copies of the book via the website as well. But yeah, it's lovely to see the way that, that people are picking up. I mean, at the time we're recording, Doug, it's available as a pre-order. And um, I was delighted to see just this week that it's at number one in new releases in atheism on Amazon. So, uh, so, so I was <laughs> sort of like, hey, it's not every day that a book advocating yeah, yeah. for Christianity. Are you, uh, are you sending copies of this to the, uh, the four horsemen? <laughs> <laughs> or, well, I guess there's only, what, is, well, I think there's only three of them left. Yeah, 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 that's true. Well, I hope that they maybe come across it in some way. I'm, I'm always encouraged when I do hear, as I have several atheist organizations and websites wanting to get hold of a copy so they can review it. I'm not sure what the reviews will say, but, uh, sure. It, yeah. It, it, I, I love the fact, I mean, what I want to continue, you know, because obviously I've, I've been known for hosting conversations between the Christian secular world and atheists. I, I, I don't want to, in this new phase of my ministry, sort of uh, just suddenly start speaking to Christians. I really want to keep that dynamic of, of speak, mm, mm-hmm, speaking mm-hmm. across the divide. And I love the fact that a number of non-Christians have already started picking up the book and, and giving me some feedback, which is wonderful. Yeah, but justinbriley.com is a good place to, to go and get hold of the book. And uh, by the time this podcast releases, we should be just about ready to release our documentary series as well um, on the back of the book as well. Excellent. Well, Justin, I appreciate where the Lord has placed you and your ministry and, and connecting the right types of conversations and making them happen. And so I wish you well on this book and in the documentaries that you're doing Yeah, and all of your ministry. So thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you, Doug. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 